it's not fair. Three words that we've thought hundreds of times and felt thousands of times. It's those same three words that motivated Rabbi Harold Kushner to write an instant bestseller in 1982 when good things, when bad things happen to good people. Maybe you've heard of the book. He wrote the book out of personal experience. A Jewish man, his son was born with a degenerative disease called progeria. It was caused his son to uh, age prematurely. He died after living a life of pain at the age of 14. And as he tried to reconcile his belief in a God who was all-powerful and was in control, yet was good and compassionate and loving, he couldn't do it. And as he progressed through his book, he concluded that there's no way that God could be all-powerful. He was limited in power. He's limited in knowledge. He wasn't infinite, yet he was finite. And though I certainly don't agree with his theological conclusion, God is both good and great. He is certainly all-powerful, and he is all-loving. Yet I think we can resonate with that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why today, or this week, or this month, have we felt that same feeling? It's not fair. Because those doubts usually focus in one of two areas. We tend to doubt God's greatness, just as Kushner did. Doubting that God is all-powerful, is in control. Or we tend to doubt God's goodness, His love, and His compassion in our life. And though we might not always want to admit it, I know there's times in our life where we've questioned, where we've doubted whether God was great or whether God was good. And it looks like a young couple, recently married, at their 10-week appointment with their OB doc, just about to get an ultrasound. And they pray with the tech before the procedure starts, asking that everything might be okay with the pregnancy. And when the tech starts to do the exam, doesn't find a heartbeat, doesn't see any movement. Powerful! Then why would you allow this to happen? Why didn't you save this life that desperately wants children, yet has been struggling deeply with infertility, and has begged the Lord over and over and over again, God, give us a child, allow us to have children. And for some reason, above our pay grade, God says, no. And that individual thinks, no, God, if you really loved us, if you really had compassion on us, then wouldn't you just answer our prayer? It's that young man or that young woman who's suffering with same-sex attraction, who's begged over and over again, God, take away this thorn from my life. For some reason, God says, no. And that young man or that young woman thinks, God, if you really loved me, then you would just take away this struggle in my life. The same desire happens when we read the headlines and there's a 21-year-old evangelical who kills eight people to eliminate a risk of sexual temptation. A headline from Atlanta last week. And we think, God, if you were really all-powerful, you could have prevented this from happening. When we look throughout our life, if we're being honest with ourselves, those are frustrations, those are feelings that each one of us 
has. I know that I'm not alone tonight. And we ask, God, are you paying attention? God, do you really care? God, is this really your plan? God, if you have the power to do absolutely anything, then why does it seem like you're standing on the sidelines? It's the problem of pain. It's nothing new, which is why Scripture is anything but silent on the problem of pain. Look at the Psalms, the lament Psalms, and David, the other psalmist, crying out to God in the midst of the pain, saying, God, where are you? God, it seems like you're far away. It seems like you can't hear me. Where are you? It's the book of Job, where the reader gets the behind the scenes glimpse into Job's life, but Job has no idea that he got the short end of the stick of a cosmic wager between God and the devil, and his wife tells him to curse God and die, and his friends are saying, well, God must hate you because you have all this sin in your life. Gives us a glimpse into the problem of evil. But tonight, I'm convinced that one of the best pictures of how we can respond to the problem of evil comes from a book that we've probably never read. And I promise you can't even spell it without spell check. Maybe Andrew can, but that's about it. And it'd probably be hard to find without the table of contents. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk gives us a glimpse in how we might respond to our frustration with God in our life. Now, here's a disclaimer. I don't think Habakkuk answers the why question. I don't think he addresses the, God, why have you allowed these things to happen? God, why is there suffering in my life? Why is the world getting worse and worse? But instead, in the midst of the valley, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the frustration with what's going on around us, Habakkuk gives us a template for how we can move beyond the pain and the brokenness. So just a couple uh, points of background on Habakkuk before we dive in uh, to the writing here. Habakkuk was a prophet to Judah, to the two southern tribes, 20 years before Babylon came in and decimated and desecrated Jerusalem and took the people away as captives. 20 years before 580 of King Jehoiakim, who is an evil, terrible ruler. His only goal was to make his palace bigger and to fatten his own wallet. And he was shedding innocent blood in Jerusalem. He was killing innocent people to accomplish it. The idolatry was rampant. The immorality was rampant. And Habakkuk, as a student of the scriptures, knew that as the leader goes, so go the people. And he could see his nation getting farther and farther and farther away from the Lord. Things were getting worse and worse. And Habakkuk knew just by looking at the first five books of the Old Testament, just by reading Deuteronomy, that as the nation got farther and farther away from the Lord, that God's discipline, that his judgment was going to come very, very soon upon the people. And he was frustrated because he felt like, God, are you seeing this? Are you paying attention to this? Aren't you going to do something? He's a new type of prophet. He's unique in all of the minor prophets. Because all the other 11, they receive a message from God, and then uh, they proclaim that message, they preach that message to the people. That's not Habakkuk. It's the opposite. Habakkuk takes his complaint and goes directly to God. Instead of God initiating the conversation, it's Habakkuk who's initiating the conversation, and he's asking the questions that we feel in our heart all the time. So follow along with me as I read Habakkuk 1, 1 through 4. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and will you not hear? 
or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly and wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Let me paraphrase what Habakkuk is saying in today's language. Let's make this sound a little bit more like 2021. God, did you get my text message? Did you get my email? Did you get my voicemail? Because it seems like your phone's on do not disturb. It seems like it must be on airplane mode because you seem to be ignoring me. I'm reaching out again for help. I'm in the lowest of low. I'm suffering from anxiety and from depression and from this deep sadness because I'm looking around at the world around me and everything is going from bad to worse. There's these evil people that seem to be prospering. The ones who are running away from you, they're the ones who have money. They're the ones who are healthy. They're the ones who are happy. And then it gets worse because the people who have your word, they don't even seem to care and they're throwing it to the wind and they're disregarding all of God's laws. I'm seeing my world get worse and worse. My culture is a horrible place. God, when are you going to wake up? When are you going to pay attention? Hello, can you hear me? I mean, how many of those same things could we say in 2021? But as Habakkuk continues, he has an experience that probably isn't normative, (laughs) that we probably shouldn't expect when we go to God with the same questions. And God in his grace gives Habakkuk an answer. And I don't think he answered just for Habakkuk's sake. He answered for our sake as well, so that we could get a glimpse into God's heart. Look at verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. That's God's first sentence to Habakkuk. And if we just read that verse, we just memorize that verse, maybe a prosperity preacher preaches on that verse, and we think, wow, God's going to do a work in our day so amazing that we wouldn't believe it if someone had told us. It's a picture of repentance and revival and renewal and blessing. It's the opposite. Look at verse 6. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Verse 11. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Well, what he's doing is he's raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that fierce nation to the north that's going to come and bring about God's discipline, bring about his punishment on the people of Israel. The Babylonians, they mock their competition. Their army was the strongest in the world. They had the strength and the might to defeat anybody. And God tells Habakkuk, that's the nation I'm going to come, and they're going to come and bring judgment and destruction on your people. I promise Habakkuk wished that he'd never answered the question. That was not the answer that he was looking for. He wanted God to promise blessing and say, well, I'm going to bring about revival and, and repentance. There's going to be a return. No, God's bringing judgment and discipline. And I think sometimes we do something similar. That when we cry out to God in the midst of the pain, and we say, God, where are you? We have an intended purpose in mind. We have an intended future in mind. We know what we want God to do. And I think it looks 
a little bit like this. When that dream relationship ends, and we cry out to God and say, God, where are you? Will you just show up? I think what we might be saying is, God, will you just bring this relationship back? Or when we don't get that dream job, or we don't get placed in the program in the college that we desire, and we say, God, where are you? It doesn't seem like you're paying attention. Ultimately, we want God to change his course of action and get us back into that school, that program that we desire. When I pray, God, just end this pandemic already. Partially, I'm praying, God, I just want everything to return to normal so I can do what I want again. I think oftentimes, like Habakkuk, we feel like we know better than God. We feel like we know the direction that we want him to go. And in this case, you know, those aren't necessarily bad requests that I just listed. But we have to remember that God is so much bigger. He's so much higher. His sovereignty is so much more complex than my plan. But when God doesn't answer according to the way that I want, then we get frustrated. And Habakkuk was not exempt from those feelings of frustration. Look at verse 12. Habakkuk replies to the Lord, God, are, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you've ordained them, the Chaldeans, as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Who are you of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong? Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Do you see what Habakkuk is doing? He plays the holiness card. And he's saying something like this. God, aren't you holy? Aren't you sovereign? Aren't you, aren't you all-powerful? I'm not sovereign. I'm not all-powerful. And I know that bringing the Chaldeans to bring judgment on my people, that is a horrible idea. Because of them, they're seven times more evil than us. Why would you ever use an even worse nation to bring about judgment on your people? It makes no sense. I mean, this has to be some cruel joke. Is it April Fool's Day? Like, what in the world is going on? And Habakkuk is so convinced that he's delivered this, this tight argument. He feels like an attorney. He feels like a defense lawyer. And he thinks, I've won the case. God is going to have to change his course of action. I have to be right. And that's what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I'll answer concerning my complaint. <laughs> Do you see what he's saying? He's just going to go to the watch tower and he's just waiting for God to come and answer his request. It's almost like he's demanding God to answer him. <laughs> Last time I checked, I don't think that's how it works. And maybe I'm reading too much in between the lines, but, you know, as I look through chapter 1, in that first verse of chapter 2, it seems like Habakkuk is just a little bit prideful. He's hurt. He's experienced, experiencing the pain of his culture, certainly. And if he's not prideful, then he's certainly just a little bit confused. He's trying to understand his life context, his situation through a human lens, and it's not working. Because it's not going to be possible for us to understand, to discern the things of God. Habakkuk learns a lesson that all of us have to learn at some point. That God's ways are not our ways. And we can't understand his sovereignty 
We're not going to wrap our mind around his plan. It's just not how it works. We can't establish ourselves at the watch post and just demand that God answer our request. We can't make demands of God. He's God. We're not. Now, he can make demands of us, but it's not a two-way street. But even in the midst of maybe a little bit of a broken response, I think we can glean a little bit of wisdom from how Habakkuk responded to his pain. Because look where he went. Look where he didn't go. He didn't go to Facebook. He didn't go to Instagram. He didn't go to Google. He didn't call his friends and his family members. He didn't go to a counselor. None of those things are bad. They're good things. But Habakkuk is a picture of the place that we need to go with our pain. The best place to go and the first place that we need to go is God himself. And he might feel like the last person that we want to talk to in the midst of our frustration, in the midst of our questions, in the midst of thinking, God, are you really paying attention? It doesn't feel like you love me right now. No, we need to take our doubts directly to God. And that's our first principle they want us to remember tonight. Direct your doubts to God. Direct your doubts to God. And it sounds a little bit like this. God, I'm frustrated by this pandemic. God, I'm angry that my vacation got canceled. God, I just can't put up with another week of virtual education. God, it doesn't seem like you're listening. God, I'm broken over the loss I felt this last year. God, I'm confused why the world just keeps getting worse and worse. Friends, God knows our heart. (laughs) He knows how we feel. And in the moments of frustration, we have to pour out our heart to God. Tell him what we're thinking. Tell him how we're feeling. Share our frustrations with him. And we take those doubts, those frustrations, and we leave them in his presence through prayer. We need to take them to the Lord. And I know that sometimes, at least for me, I wish that God would answer my request, just like he answered Habakkuk. (laughs) I wish that he'd appear in a dream or a vision or maybe a text message or an email would be just fine. But he doesn't do that, at least not to me. But we have to remember that God has given us everything that we need to live a life of godliness. He's given us his word. And in the midst of the pain that we're feeling in our life, when we pour out our heart to God, then we wait for him to reply. We go to his word. We go to his word. And we want to hear from the Lord. If we want him to speak to us, then we... Now, when we're frustrated with what God's doing around us, sometimes going into scripture is not the first place that we feel like going. Think of all of the other things that we might run toward. The things that we might use an escape in our life in the middle of the pain... Maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's food, maybe it's spending, maybe it's video games, I don't know. I mean, think of all the different things we could use as an escape. No, the first place that we have to go is God's word. And for me, in the middle of the pain, sometimes it's best to to turn to a passage that speaks to me every time I read it. For me, it's a passage like Romans 8 or John 13 to 17. 
And we'll have an opportunity even to share what some of those passages are for us in our small groups tonight. But as the passage continues, God graciously replies to Habakkuk's request. And he answers him again. But I think we'll see that his reply is anything but comforting. I mean, Habakkuk is waiting to, to watch God back off of the prophecy that he's made and, and say, no, I'll, I'll, I'll protect you, it's okay. I mean, that's not what God says. In chapter 2, God replies to Habakkuk and says, you know, what I promised, it's going to happen. The Chaldeans, they're going to come. The dominoes have already started to fall. And if somebody says it's not going to happen, if somebody thinks ah, God's kind of slow to fulfill his promise, don't believe them, just wait, because the discipline is going to come. But in the midst of the judgment that God promises on his people, he provides this one-sentence summary that's the key for us to move beyond the pain. Look at the back half of verse 4. But the righteous shall live by faith. That's a line that we see repeated over and over again. Paul uses it throughout the New Testament. It's the, the staple of the Protestant Reformation in Romans 1.17. Faith, it's the assurance of things that we hope for, the certainty of things that we don't see. And for us, faith in Christ is the key of moving beyond the brokenness. And that's our next principle. Faith sees beyond the brokenness. There are a couple reasons for us that faith sees beyond the brokenness. Because faith does two things. It looks in the rearview mirror and it looks through the front windshield. And if you're going to pass your driver's test, you need to do both. Think of faith looking to the past. It's what we're about to celebrate in the next one. Was I there? No. When he was nailed to the cross, and when the nails pierced his hands and his feet, were you there? No. When he hung on the cross, he cries out to Telestai. The side is pierced and he's placed in the tomb. Were we there? Not literally. But I believe by faith that it was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. My sin was there. And I believe by faith that Jesus paid the price of my sin, past, present, and future, when he died for me on the cross. So faith looks back at what Christ has done. And when we have that relationship with Christ, when we trust that he died for us, that he rose for us by faith, raced, we have a right relationship with God. We've been adopted into his family. Our faith in Christ is the foundation of what it means for us to see beyond the brokenness. Because we have Jesus and nothing and no one, not even the worst of circumstances, can take away Jesus from us. But then faith also looks ahead to the future. And certainly when Paul used this passage in Romans 1.17, he was talking about salvation. But when God is using it here in Habakkuk, think of the context. I don't think he's talking about salvation. He's talking about trials and persecution and suffering. The righteous shall live by his faith, trusting that God is going to get us through the trial, the struggle, the pain that we're walking through. And it's not some trite faith believing that somehow things are just magically going to be better tomorrow. No, it's a faith even beyond our circumstances. It's a faith of knowing that this life is just a vapor, that our earthly home is just a tent, that we're awaiting a glorious eternity filled with splendor with our Savior. 
Faith looks to the past at what Christ has done, but faith looks ahead to what Christ will do when he'll bring us home to be with him. Faith, it doesn't eliminate the pain, but faith gives us the perspective to see beyond the pain, the joy waiting for us in eternity. What a great passage. The just shall live by faith. And if we were to take time to read chapter 3 in its entirety, we get a glimpse of Habakkuk's heart change. That he turns away from maybe some of the attitude that we saw in chapter 1, and he trusts in the Lord. But maybe we can put ourselves in Habakkuk's shoes for just a moment. I mean, imagine what it would have been like to be him. To know that at an undisclosed time, that an evil nation is going to come down, they're going to totally destroy your city, they're going to kill some of your family and some of your friends, the rest of them they are going to put in shackles and drive them 900 miles to the north to be exiles and die in a foreign land. Imagine waking up every single day asking yourself, huh, could today be the day? That doesn't sound like a life that I want to live. I think sometimes ignorance is bliss. So Habakkuk's circumstances, they didn't change. His attitude and his perspective changed. Trusting in God in the midst of the pain. His faith turns from frustration into trust. But he doesn't leave it there. He actually takes it a step farther. And we see that in one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Chapter 3, verses 17 to 19 says this. Nor fruit be on the vines, nor the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer, and he makes me tread on high places. Now, out of context, that's one of the coolest passages in Scripture. And in context, it's even cooler. Because we look at verse 17. Habakkuk knows that the picture he's painting is going to come true. He's painting a picture of total and complete economic ruin. If we were to translate it to 2021 words, it would sound like this. If the grocery store runs out of food and there's no gas at the pump, if the power grid fails and all of the running water dries up, if the hospital shut their doors and all of my money disappears, you put those six things together, that is total and complete economic ruin. And no matter how bad the last year has been in our life, certainly it hasn't looked like that. But that's what Habakkuk knows is coming. His alarm could go off any morning, and that could be what he would wake up to. But then what does he say in verse 18? Yet, I'm choosing to rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. What an incredible picture. That even in the midst of the pain, in the midst of an uncertain future, Habakkuk is choosing to praise the Lord. And that's our final principle tonight. Praise gets us through the pain. Praise gets us through the pain. 
Because praise, it's not a feeling. It's a choice. The best thing that we can do in the midst of the pain is to praise God. Because God is the only constant in our life. He's the only absolute good. He is the only one who's in control. The only one who can forgive us and cleanse us. The only one who is someday going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Our praise is infused with faith. Knowing that life is short, eternity is forever, and someday we will be with the Lord. And praise, it sets our heart, it inclines our perspective toward the Lord. So we have to practice praise, even if we don't feel like it. And music is a great way, a great place to start. Maybe it means grabbing the guitar or sitting down at the piano. Maybe it means going to Spotify and and listening and meditating on a worship playlist. There are songs that God has used to speak to me in the midst of the valley, in the midst of the pain. God uses music to speak to us. But certainly, we can't limit praise to music. It's so much more than that. Maybe we can take time to just journal and and talk to God and write down some things that we're thankful for. Maybe we can take a walk at sunset or, or go on a hike and just spend some time talking to God, thanking Him for His creation. Maybe we can call up a friend and we can pray together and just talk about some ways that God's been a blessing in our life. Praise, it gets us through the pain. It doesn't eliminate the pain. It doesn't fix the pain, but it gives us the perspective beyond the pain. And then in verse 19, Habakkuk gives us one great reason to praise the Lord. It says, God is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and makes me tread on high places. It's an interesting picture. Maybe I can explain it with an illustration. When I was growing up, my parents lived not too far down the road in Rim Mountain. And their backyard was filled with rocks. Anywhere from the size of a basketball to the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. I mean, these rocks were huge. And there was no grass, there was no dirt, nothing. It was just roots, rocks, some dead leaves, and some trees. Now, if I was in their backyard trying to walk through the woods, I would have to go like a half of a mile an hour. Because if I tried to walk quickly, if I tried to run, I was going to fall and break a leg or get a concussion or do both at the same time. And trying to get someone out of those rocks on a stretcher doesn't sound fun either. So I'd have to walk very carefully. But we could sit in my parents' living room and look out through the windows, and we could see deer running through the yard. You pause to think about it. How do they do that? How can a deer run through this rocky terrain without breaking a leg? I have no idea. That's just how God made them, right? But that's the picture that Habakkuk is painting here. These deer that are running up on the mountains, these uneven terrain all over these rocks where it feels like if we're walking on them that we should stumble and we should fall every three steps. Well, God is saying that in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the uneven terrain, the difficult circumstances in our life, I wish that it said that God just lifted us out of them, but it doesn't say that. He gives us the strength. He gives us the perseverance. He gives us the poise to walk with steadiness in the midst of the pain. And even more than that, God promises not to abandon us. He promises to walk with us in the midst of the pain. He holds our hand. He's right there with us. Think of the 23rd Psalm, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because you are with me. That when life gets rough, 
when we're frustrated with our circumstances, that God doesn't abandon us, but he's right there with us. I have no idea the pain that you brought in the door tonight. It's not just out in the world, it's here. And whatever we're walking through, God promises that he's going to walk with us. It's not going to be easy. When we decided to follow Christ, he didn't promise that life was going to be a walk on the beach. It's not. But he promises to be with us because he's faithful and we can trust him. And one final thought. When we look at Habakkuk's life, he was a righteous man. He had a right relationship with God. We don't have any evidence of unconfessed sin in his life. Yet Habakkuk looked at his world and he knew that at some point he was going to suffer because of the sin of his culture. Which doesn't seem fair. But isn't that how sin works? Think of all the times that we've suffered because of the sin of a parent or a coworker, family member, a friend. Maybe because of our culture or our country. And that doesn't feel fair, but that's how sin works. Sin might feel personal. I don't claim to have a glimpse behind the veil into what's going to happen in the future in our world. Romans 1. You know, it certainly seems like God's discipline, his judgment, is going to fall upon our culture at some point. I don't know when. I don't know what that's going to look like. But when that does happen, even though we're not complicit in the sin of our culture, we're still going to have to face some of the earthly consequences of our culture's sin. And that doesn't feel fair. But that was the life that Habakkuk walked. That's the life that we will walk. And when that day does come, then I pray that our response is the same as Habakkuk. Though the fig tree shouldn't blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength to make me tread on high places. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for the moments when we think that we know better than you. And in those moments, in those moments of frustration, teach us to take the doubts to you and to pour out our hearts to you, uh, to praise you for who you are, for what you've done for us, knowing that you have a plan for us beyond our circumstances, that you walk with us in the midst of the valley. You're faithful, and we can trust you. So as we even take some time to talk through some of these tough topics in our small groups tonight, may you guide our discussion. Uh, we're thankful for your kindness toward us in allowing us to be together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.